there to be confusion among uh, the members of our church or the people that attend our church in thinking that this is the most important theological issue. Um, Personally, I don't think that your view of baptism is the most important theological issue. The only way that it becomes a critical issue that would be questioned is if you held to what we call baptismal regeneration. That is the idea that somehow water saves you, that somehow baptism is a work that you add to faith. Um, that obviously would be anathema. I mean, Paul says that in Galatians, right? That if, if I or even an angel from heaven preaches to you a, a different gospel than the one you originally received from me, let him be cursed, let him be damned, let him be anathema. And Paul was dealing there with the Judaizers who were adding circumcision to faith so that Gentiles that were converting to the gospel these Judaizers, Judaizing teachers said that faith was necessary and circumcision. So they weren't dealing with faith plus baptism. They were dealing with faith plus circumcision. And Paul says uh, those sorts of teachers are heretics. Those sorts of teachers are um, unbelievers. They have a place assigned for them in hell because they are not trusting in Christ alone uh, for their salvation. There have been many groups throughout church history who have held in principle to the same thing the Judaizers held to with respect to the covenant sign of the new covenant, not circumcision, but baptism. Um, church of Christ would be one example. Uh, they, they believe very, very, very strongly in baptismal regeneration. Um, they believe that if you are not baptized, if you are not baptized... Um, then you will not go to heaven. And that baptism has to be immersion. So they hold to the baptism of believers only. They hold to the same doctrine that Baptists hold to with respect to the mode of baptism, except for the fact that Baptists do not believe that baptism is necessary for salvation. Um, that would be a heresy to say that baptism is part of salvation. So as long as you don't hold to that position, and to my knowledge, there's no one uh, in our church that holds to that position, whatever your conclusion is on the matter of baptism, whether you hold to covenantal infant baptism or you hold to believers baptism only, doesn't uh, make a huge issue. Um, but if you hold to work salvation, that, that obviously is a huge issue. That, that opens the Pandora's box to a whole number of other issues that are related to the gospel and touch upon the gospel itself. Uh, so when I decided to teach on baptism, my and this is the honest to goodness truth, and I'll, I'll mention more of this in my sermon this morning, my goal was really not to try to convince you of my position. Now, that is going to be maybe the result of the teaching that some of you may be convinced to switch from credo-baptism to paedo-baptism, or maybe my teaching will solidify with some of you your already paedo-baptist convictions. But my goal was never initially and primarily to, to think that I could somehow in five or six lessons convince a convinced credo-baptist that he needed or she needed to switch to paedo-baptism. That was not... 
the design. That was not my intention. That was not my motivation. I was solely motivated by the fact that my convictions have changed. My convictions have changed on this issue, and they've changed on this issue to such a degree that for me not to express why I now hold to a different position on baptism would be sin. Uh, For me not to publicly confess, for me not to publicly teach through giving, as it were, an apologetic on why I want to make the switch from uh, credo-baptism to pedo-baptism would be a breach of integrity. It would be, it would be a lack of honesty. It would be uh, a lack of character. So my motivation is simply to lay down rather personally why my convictions have changed. Now the result of that may be that some of your convictions may change. And, and I would rejoice with you in that if that was the case. But um, I've lived long enough to understand that hearts are stubborn, convictions are strong, and I was stubborn on this issue for the better part of 25, 30 years. So I don't expect everyone to adopt exactly my view when it comes to baptism. That is not the motivation. If that's the result, praise the Lord. Um, if it's not, I'm okay with that as well. When we originally established the church, um, it was understood and it was very publicly expressed that you can be a member of Christ Reformed regardless of your position on baptism, so long as you didn't hold to baptismal regeneration. So in one sense, nothing is really changing about what we do here at the church. Um, The only thing that will be changed is that from time to time there will be infants or small children who receive uh, the sign of water baptism before they make a credible profession of faith. And that will only take place after teaching on that subject has concluded and questions are answered and those sorts of things. So that's just sort of a personal note um, that I want you to understand. Uh, But Acts chapter 16, let's look beginning in verse number 11. This is speaking about uh, Paul... And as he travels and he preaches, it says, So setting sail from Troas, Luke is recording this, We made a direct voyage to Samothrace, and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days, and on the Sabbath day we went outside the gate to the riverside, where we supposed there was a place of prayer, and we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized and her household as well, she urged us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. Verse 16, as we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone... They seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, 
These men are Jews and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. Verse 25, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them, and he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. Now, a couple of things that I want to point out to you. The first thing is this. The whole argument regarding covenantal infant baptism is absolutely grounded upon the idea that throughout scriptures, entire families entire households had the right of the covenant that is the sign of the covenant applied to them and their children so for example father abraham believed god he was an adult convert to the gospel john 8:56 jesus said that the that abraham rejoiced to see my day and when he saw it he was glad Paul says in Galatians chapter 3, and I think it is verse number 8, that the gospel was preached beforehand to Abraham, and Abraham believed, and he became the father of many nations. The sign of circumcision in the Old Covenant was applied to his entire household based upon the fact that he was a believer. You begin in the Old Testament, that was the book of Genesis, so when you get to the New Testament and the beginning part of the New Testament, you have the same sort of thing in principle taking place now in the New Covenant where the sign is switched from uh, circumcision to baptism, but you have these examples such as Lydia and the Philippian jailer in just one chapter in the book of Acts, and there are other examples of household baptisms, but you have the very same sort of thing taking place. Now many people will say, well, there's no way that we could possibly know whether or not there were infants in these households. There's no way that we could possibly know that there were young children in these households. Well, I guess that if the text does not explicitly say there were young children and infants, then we should not assume that out of a vacuum. However, context is something that we all value very much, right? We prize the context. Common sense and logic would suggest that if the language of household is being used, then there were obviously children present. You don't really have a household, normally speaking, 
without the presence of children. I can put it to you this way. As Luke writes this, if, if there was just a husband and a wife, then I think Luke probably would have said uh, the spouse of Lydia, the spouse of the Philippian jailer were also baptized. That's not what he says. He speaks about their whole household. It's the Greek word oikos. And there's, there's, a, whole, there's a whole study of this particular word that many scholars, Oscar Kuhlman is one of them, but, but many, many scholars have traced the meaning of that word and they've essentially come to the conclusion that it almost always refers to um, a plural number of people. And when it is used in the Greek language, it uh, virtually every time includes children. When you speak about a household, even in the English language, almost exclusively you are speaking about the fact that there are children present. Now obviously there, there are husband and wife who still have a household when they don't have children, but that's not the normal way that that language is used. Aside from that fact, what I want you to think about here is that if you look with me, for example, at verse 14, it says that when Lydia heard the preaching of Paul, she was already a worshiper of God, but the Lord opened her heart, verse 14, to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized. Now, it does not say that Lydia received Christ in her heart by making a profession of faith and repenting of her sins because she was convicted of her sins. But that is implied, right? When it says the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what Paul said, that means that she understood she was quickened by the Holy Spirit. I mean, it's inferred that she was quickened by the Holy Spirit, that she recognized her sin, that she recognized Jesus Christ to be the Messiah, that she placed her faith in Christ, that she became a believer. The text does not say that. That is inferred from the text, correct? That is implied from the text. No one would argue that Lydia wasn't a believer. But let's just be technical here. Verse 14 does not say she repented of her sins and she believed. It says the Lord opened her heart and she paid attention to what Paul said. And then verse 15 says, after she was baptized. That again implies that she repented of her sin. She placed faith in Christ. But then it says, and her household as well. Her household as well were baptized. And then of course, Paul was invited in to the household and... She urged them, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us, Luke says. So there's all sorts of implications or inferences that we draw from texts of Scripture all of the time. Because the Bible does not record, and I can give you this example, the life of our Lord. We're preaching through the Gospel of Mark. You realize that in every episode that we look at, in the life of our Lord, it is not an exhaustive record of everything that occurred in that particular episode. It's a summary. It's, it's highlights. It's the cliff notes, as you were. It's what the Spirit of God wanted us to see and understand about a particular episode in the life of Christ, what theology can be drawn out of it, what beliefs we can cling to, and how we are to apply 
those passages to our lives. But there are all sorts of inferences and applications and implications that we draw from those episodes from the life of Christ that are confirmed by other passages of Scripture, such as things that the Apostle Paul taught or the Apostle Peter taught, so that we are whole Bible Christians. So the fact that this text does not say Lydia had children does not mean she didn't have children. It also doesn't say that she repented and believed in the gospel. It just says the Lord opened her heart. We infer from that she became a believer. And it doesn't say anything about her children believing if she had them. But it does say that every person of her household was baptized. The rite of baptism was applied. The sign of the covenant was applied to every member of that household. What about the uh, Philippian jailer? Well, look with me after he is um, miraculously freed from prison we have a little bit more clarity verse 30 he brought them out and said sirs what must I do to be saved and they said believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved you and your household and they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house and he took them the hour of the night washed their wounds baptized them at once excuse me he was baptized at once he and all his family Then he brought them up into his house, set food before them, and he rejoiced along with his entire household. Notice this, that he had believed in God. Now here we have a little bit more clarity, don't we? It says that he asked the question, verse 30, what must I do to be saved? Verse 31, they said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Implication also If those in your household believe today or someday in the future, they too will be saved. But then the end of verse 34 says that in the final analysis, the household rejoiced because he had believed. Indicating by inference that it is likely he had infants and small children in his household that did not have the capacity to believe that did not have the capacity to demonstrate faith, that did not have the capacity to make what we would call a valid profession of faith. But yet the whole household rejoiced. The whole household was baptized based upon the conversion of the head of the house, the Philippian jailer. That seems to me to be strikingly similar and runs parallel to the conversion of Abraham and the circumcision of of his household. So when we think through the issue of baptism, I don't think that we argue primarily from household baptisms. I don't think that we argue primarily from what the record of church history suggests, and that is that the church has essentially practiced infant baptism throughout on, on every continent and every geographical place for the first 1,500 years of the church virtually exclusively practicing infant baptism. Um, those are strong arguments, but to me, they, although they're very strong, the issue is proven by how we view the covenant, how we understand the covenant, how we understand headship in the home, how we understand even the concept of substitution. Um, Abraham was the head of his home, the Philippian jailer was the head of his home, and both households received the particular sign of the particular covenant that they were in. Obviously, 
If you're an adult and you convert to Christ, your baptism follows your conversion, right? It, it obviously follows faith and repentance. But what about those who are part of the household who don't have the spiritual capacity to demonstrate faith? It appears to me from the inferences and the implications from Scripture that those children in those households had that right of the covenant sign applied to them. Uh, you may come to a different conclusion, but the weight of evidence, I think, leans in favor of pedo-baptism over believer's baptism only. Um, I'm sorry we couldn't spend more time on household baptisms. We will mention it. Uh, I'll mention a little bit about it in my sermon, so I don't want to kind of steal all the thunder to that. Um, but the argument of household baptisms, I think, is a strong argument. It doesn't seal it, just like the argument from church history doesn't seal it. But I think it is a, I think it is a heavy, heavy argument that we must deal with, and we must deal with it honestly. So uh, that's really all I wanted to say this morning. I want to give you an opportunity to to ask questions. Maybe there's things that I've said over the last several weeks um, that you have some nagging question uh, that you want answered, or maybe maybe just some clarification on some of these things that we've spoken about. Um, so, whoever's first can ask the first question. Whoever is not too shy to do so. Yes, sir, Mr. Bud Allheim. I knew you would ask a question. I knew you would be the first to ask a question, too. Yeah, what what Bud is asking, just to make sure it comes up on the on the camera for the uh, for the video, he he's asking, you know, in in coming to the conclusion that that pedo baptism is taught in Scripture, you don't begin with the subject of baptism; you begin with the subject of the covenant. And he's made the observation that that is exactly where I began. I began with an argument about the covenant. Because I agree with your question and your comment that that is where, that is where the issues lie. If, if you embrace the concept of a covenant, if you embrace the concept that the heads of homes are important, that the family is important. I mean, for example, in Malachi chapter 2, uh, the marriage is spoken about in terms of a covenant. So there's covenant language throughout all of Scripture. When you understand the concept of covenant and you understand the, the place of children within that covenant, it almost becomes inevitable that, that you will adopt pedo-baptism, that you will adopt uh, in principle exactly what was occurring in the old covenant with all the promises that God made to Abraham and to his children, that these salvation promises are for your children and for your children's children to a thousand generations, the Bible says. 
And Genesis 17, the promise God made to Abraham that he would save him and his seed is referred to as an everlasting covenant. Now, I grew up Baptist. You did not mess with the word everlasting. Everlasting meant forever, didn't it? Everlasting life? I was taught you don't ever, ever, ever teach that you can lose your salvation. It's called everlasting life for a reason. It lasts forever. Well, in Genesis 17, the covenant God made with Abraham is referred to as an everlasting covenant. So when we come to the New Testament, it's not like God's everlasting promises hit a brick wall and they no longer apply. Part of those promises God made to Abraham was the salvation of his covenant children. So why would we assume those promises end when the new covenant comes? That's why you must begin the discussion with the subject of the covenant, which is exactly why I preached on Genesis 17. That was all preparatory to what I would teach on in Sunday school because if you can understand the concept of the covenant, I think inevitably you will at a minimum understand the argument for covenant infant baptism and very likely at some point eventually embrace that. But it's absolutely, absolutely critical to understand the value that Scripture places on the covenant, the value God places upon the family. That's why we have very high standards as Christians regarding marriage, the importance of marriage, the importance of raising our children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, and, and all of those things. So you begin with covenant, and then you work out from that, and, it, and the pieces, I think, begin uh, to fall in place. Yes, Brother Sean. So Sean's asking about Hebrews chapter 8, which is one of my, my favorite uh, passages of Scripture. Um, it's speaking about how Christ, in the context of Hebrews chapter 8, um, is the high priest of a better covenant. So verse 4, it says, Now if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God saying, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second for he finds fault with them. So the fault is not with the covenant itself. The fault is with them who were under the covenant. He found fault with them. Why did he find fault with them? Let's think about this. You go back to Luke chapter 17. One of the things that makes the new covenant better, and this is the whole argument of Hebrews, is the fact that there will be a reformation in the new covenant between fathers and their children. 
there will be a reformation of the family. One of the principal problems of the Old Covenant was not with the structure of the Old Covenant. It wasn't with the promises of the Old Covenant. The promises were everlasting. But it, the problem was with the people of that Old Covenant who circumcised their children physically. But, you know, Moses says in Deuteronomy 10, I, yeah, exactly, I don't care about the fact that you're physically circumcised. I want your heart to be circumcised. So what was the problem? The problem was they were trusting in circumcision. And we see this in the days of Jesus Christ. They were trusting in circumcision as a means to salvation. The fault with them was that they believed, in essence, ex opere operato when it came to circumcision. That made you part of the people of God, and they were removing faith out of the equation. So, verse 8 of Hebrews says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord. And this is a prophecy from from the Old Testament. Jeremiah 31, Joel chapter 2, Ezekiel 37, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah, not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them up out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant, and so I show no concern for them, declares the Lord, for this is the covenant I'll make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I'll put my law into their minds, write them on their hearts, I'll be their God, they'll be my people. They shall not teach each one of his neighbor, each one of his brothers, saying, know the Lord. Lord, for they all know me from the least of them to the greatest, for I will be merciful to their iniquities. I will remember their sins no more. And in speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. What is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. What the author of Hebrews is speaking about there is there is now a, a, a difference between the signs that are associated with the old covenant and the new covenant, circumcision is now giving way to baptism because Christ has come. He is a better mediator than Moses. All of the promises that were made to Abraham are now being fulfilled in Christ. So now this new covenant is going to be better. It's going to be better with the promised pouring out of the Holy Spirit. It's going to be better because it's a more inclusive covenant. Now the gospel is going to reach the nations. It's going to be a better covenant because now the sign of the covenant is applied not just to males, but it's applied to males and females. And it's going to be a better covenant because there is going to be this this reformation of the family. And what do we see in the book of Acts? We see households, households coming into the church. Cornelius' household, Lydia's household, the Philippian jailer, Stephanus' household. All the families of the earth, to borrow the language of Acts 3.25, fulfilling the Abrahamic covenant that in you and in your seed, all the nations of the world will be blessed. So it is a better covenant because Christ has come. That, that is the point of, of Hebrews chapter 8. The heart of your question relates to this issue. There are some Reformed people, there are some Presbyterians who absolutely see no discontinuity between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And what I mean by that is, is they act like uh, there's no differences between the New Covenant and the Old Covenant. There are clearly differences between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. There is clear discontinuity. Um, The sign has changed uh, from circumcision to baptism. Um, The inclusive nature of who becomes part of the people of God has changed on a massive way. The gospel has reached the nations. 
But the point is this, salvation hasn't changed. Salvation has always been by grace alone, through faith alone, in the Lord Jesus Christ alone. That, that has never, ever, ever changed. Baptists typically will emphasize the discontinuity. Presbyterians or Reformed folk will emphasize the continuity. And now it just becomes an issue of how much continuity do we want to emphasize, how much discontinuity do we want to emphasize. But I would just say this. I think that there are good Presbyterians who baptize their infants, but they come dangerously close to believing that baptism automatically saves their children. And that is a dangerous place to be. On the other hand, I know a lot of Baptists, and I know more Baptists, who come dangerously close to affirming by their attitude toward baptism that baptism and immersion in particular is absolutely fundamentally necessary to salvation. So in in some sense, the issue of baptism does not solve the problem or the dilemma. In Presbyterian churches, you have children that grow up in those churches who end up walking away. In Baptist churches, you have children growing up in those churches who end up walking away. Baptism is applied in two different ways, and you still have apostates. So your practice of baptism does not sign, seal, and deliver automatic salvation. And there is obviously discontinuity between the covenants, and there's obviously continuity between the covenants. The question becomes, what is your view of baptism in terms of, do you believe that baptism saves? If you believe baptism saves, then it doesn't matter if you practice infant baptism or immersion. You're in error. You're wrong on what the scripture teaches. If you, if you believe in principle that part of the blessings of the new covenant include the children of believing parents receiving the overflow of the blessings of those believing parents, that's to me the most important thing. That's to me the most critical thing because you're recognizing that part of the newness of the new covenant, part of the thing that makes the new covenant better, Hebrews chapter 8, is the fact that in the new covenant there is a greater promise that the children of believers will become believers. Now this relates partially to our view of eschatology. It relates, for example, to uh, Romans chapter 11, uh, which, which speaks about the olive tree. It speaks about the branches that are grafted in. And also the, the prophecy uh, in Isaiah 27, in days to come, that's the days of the new covenant, Jacob shall take root, Israel shall blossom and put forth shoots and fill the whole world with fruit. So Israel is going to blossom. The olive tree of Romans 11 is going to blossom by virtue of the fact you have wild olive branches grafted in to the tree of Israel. And it's going to put forth shoots, Isaiah 27 verse 26, that will fill the whole world with fruit. So there was a promise that eventually in the new covenant, 
from the least of them to the greatest of them, they will all know the Lord. What does that mean? That is referring to the future. That, that is referring to days yet experienced when the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ has had such a massive influence on this planet and on God's world that they will all know the Lord from the least to the greatest. Every household will have a household full of believers that have not only had the sign of the covenant applied to them, but they prove to be actual believers. Um, So there are elements of the new covenant that have yet to be fulfilled. And I think that's an important, that is a very important argument to make. Because if you don't make that argument, then you're going to interpret Hebrews 8 as if it has already been completely fulfilled and you're going to have an over-realized eschatology which is going to lead you to believe that the only legitimate members of a New Testament church are professing believers who have been immersed. And what I would want to suggest is that's very hard to affirm when you have whole households coming into the church in the New Testament. You have... uh, Paul saying, for example, in Ephesians 6, he's speaking directly to children, telling them to obey the fifth commandment, to honor the father, their father and their mother. This is the first commandment with promise that your life on earth may be long. That was a promise made to those under the Mosaic Covenant, and Paul is making it to children in the New Covenant. If children in the Mosaic Covenant were part of the covenant, and Paul is using that mosaic covenantal language to children in the new covenant then those children must be part of the covenant those children must be part of the new testament church first corinthians 7 verse 14 you have children of of a marriage of one unbeliever and a believer paul says they're holy it says they're set apart it says they're sanctified so they are members of the new covenant they are part of the new covenant children of believers the only other question remaining is what makes them members of that covenant? And if your position is they're members of the covenant by virtue of the fact they're my children and I'm a believer and I bring them to church and I raise them in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, amen and amen, I would say to that. Praise the Lord. Um, if you come to the conclusion that the sign of baptism needs to be applied to your children as a ceremony of committing them to God, As Jesus said, forbid not the little children to come to me. I think that that fits the trajectory of Scripture as well. But the important thing to see is that children are part of that covenant. They are members of that covenant. Yes, sir. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, that's a great question. He's asking about... What is, what is the difference between members of the covenant, in our case, members of the new covenant, and the elect? Um, a huge difference. That's why you have Romans 11. Uh, that's why you have the whole book of Hebrews that speaks about apostates that fall away. Um, that's why uh, the natural branches, Romans 11, uh, Jews were broken off. And Paul gives a warning in Romans 11 to Gentile uh, believers who were engrafted in. Don't be puffed up with, with pride because you could be broken off. In other words, your profession of faith does not mean you're truly elect. A profession of faith does not prove you are elect. Your fruit proves you're elect, right? Jesus says, 
We will know them by their fruit. And so you have people in Presbyterian churches and Baptist churches all the time that are connected. They are members of the church, but they aren't true believers. So whether it's children who were baptized as babies in a Presbyterian church or it's professing adults who were immersed in a Baptist church, you cannot do away with the problem of apostasy. You can't do away with the fact that there will always be members of the church, professors of Christ, who aren't possessors of Christ. And no matter what your view of baptism is, you can't solve that dilemma. You cannot solve that dilemma. Christ never insinuated that the church would be composed of 100% regenerated individuals. That is an impossibility until the consummated kingdom. And when that happens, we'll all be in heaven. There will be no evangelism. From the least to the greatest, all will know the Lord. Um, everyone we know, everyone we associate with will be true believers. That, that's the church of the future. That, the church of the future is fully regenerated. But the church on this earth is always composed of sheep and goats. It always has tares and wheat. And to that point, Jesus even said, be careful that you don't, in trying to get rid of the tares, you don't uproot some of the wheat. That there needs to be almost this approach uh, to our view of the local church that, that is liberal in this sense. I don't mean liberal in a, in a heretical sense but liberal in this sense if someone professes to be a believer and they're an adult and they've been baptized and you have no reason to question that salvation you you accept them as members into the church if you have a child who was baptized as a baby who had believing parents and they grow up in the church and they don't give any indication that they're anything but a believer, and they have the fruit of the Spirit at work in their lives, then you assume they are true believers because by the way they're living, they are living out their profession of faith, and you embrace them. You embrace them until the day it becomes clear they're apostates or until the day it becomes clear that they refuse to repent of an open public sin when they've been urged to repent of that. Because you don't want to uproot the tear or uproot the wheat when you're trying to uproot some of the tares. In, in my personal experience, um, there is far too much secondary issues that Christians want to separate over. Baptists are notorious for this. I mean, I grew up in West Virginia where the only way that you could become a member of the Baptist church is if you made a valid profession of faith and you were baptized in another Baptist church. If you weren't baptized in another Baptist church, you had to be rebaptized. I mean, that's pretty narrow. And um, you don't smoke, drink, or chew or run with those that do. And you don't go to the movies. And women can't wear pants. And women can't cut their hair. Um we ought to be very careful to separate from other believers over secondary issues, particularly when those issues borderline on legalism or are rank legalism. And my opinion on the issue of baptism is simply this. 
I do not think is an issue to divide over. I don't even think it's an issue to divide over in the context of one local church so that there's room for people to have various positions. The only way or reason you divide over it is if someone holds the baptismal regeneration. And then, then I think all bets are off. You divide. We're five minutes over. Does anyone else have a, a question? Yes, sir. Yeah. Uh, and we're back to be we're baptized by immersion. And that, as we have studied, you have preached and we have studied, uh, completely excludes the children, that generational uh, uh, dimension that you talked about in your sermon on the covenants of grace. Yeah. Uh, so in my mind, that is a lack of understanding of covenant theology. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, it, 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 and that's a loaded question, but yeah, it's rooted in dispensationalism. It's also rooted in Arminianism. Um, it's also rooted in sort of this rugged American individualism. It's also rooted in revivalism. I mean, th- there's, there's a whole history really to this sort of understanding that in the New Covenant, it is only composed of believers who make a credible profession of faith who are immersed. That that is what composes the church. That places everything on the individual, right? It places all the, the responsibility on the individual to have a conversion experience. Um, his decision to enter the church and become a member of the church, it removes the generational covenantal elements entirely. It, it separates itself entirely from the Old Testament. All of the principles that are in the Old Testament about generational succession and generational blessings to a thousand gener- generations are all thrown away. They're all jettisoned. And I would just say this. The Southern Baptist Convention is in no place to tell the church what a healthy church looks like. I mean, all things considered, I've pastored three Southern Baptist churches, and I'm not saying this to be cruel, but in one of those churches, 
undoubtedly the majority of people were unregenerate. There is no question about it. Yet, they would argue that, that the church can only be composed of believers. Hardly any of them were believers. So your view of the covenant is critical But if you take a view that the new covenant is only composed of true believers, you've solved nothing. Because most Baptist churches that claim that are full of goats. Not all, but many are. So again, the baptism, holding to immersion or believer's baptism, does not solve the dilemma and make the church more pure. Actually, the opposite is often true in Baptist churches. Have the five-year-olds come down the aisle at VBS, force them to make some profession of faith they don't understand after they've heard a truncated gospel, immerse them in the water, give them a false sense of security. They do the same thing to their children and their children's children after them. You don't have generational blessing. You have generational cursing. You don't have gospel churches. You have anti-gospel churches. So nobody is ever going to convince me that the Southern Baptist Convention can teach me anything about the purity of the church. They have, they have relinquished their right to give any advice. And therefore, I will receive no lecture from Southern Baptists on the issue of baptism or on the issue of what a pure church looks like. Yes, sir. Yes, yeah, sure. There, there would be several. The one book that, that I would suggest if you really want to study the issue of the covenants and the issue of, of Tato baptism as an implication and application from your understanding of the covenant, the one book that I would recommend above all others, bar none, the best book, is written by Doug Wilson. It's entitled To a Thousand Generations. It's probably 130 pages. It's about this thin, It will not take you long to read, but it will take you a long time to digest because so much of what you're going to read in that is going to rub against what you've been taught, particularly if you've come from a Baptist tradition like myself. But I think if you read that book, uh, you will come to the end of that book and you will understand the covenant better. You'll understand the place of children within the church. And if you don't embrace paedo-baptism, you at least will embrace paedo-baptists, and you will accept them and love them and at least understand why they believe what they believe. So good question. To a thousand generations, order it on Amazon today, published by Canon Press. Let me pray for us, and we'll go. Father, thank you for our time to discuss these matters of baptism. Thank you for these questions. Lord, we know that there are many more questions I'm sure that folks have and maybe we'll have an opportunity in the future to answer those questions. But Lord, we thank you for your word which is clear on these issues. We thank you for, Lord, the scriptures which point us to Christ as our only hope and that's ultimately who we look forward to and who we look to as our Savior. We don't trust in the works of man. We don't trust in baptism. We don't trust in church membership. We don't trust the fact that we are children of believing parents we must look to Christ we must rest in him and so we pray that we would do that even as we understand better the implications and applications of baptism for the life of our local church we pray these things in the blessed name of Christ amen